Thank you, guys. Thank you for singing so well. This, I guess, is sort of unofficial Matt Foreman Sunday. You don't know that. But uh, some of you remember Matt. He was a, uh, a Furman student and was converted, actually, when he was at Furman and came to our church. After he graduated, he served us as, a, as an intern, pastoral intern, I think for a little over a year before he went to seminary. And now he's the pastor of uh, Faith Reformed Church in Media, Pennsylvania, a sister church. But Matt uh, takes old hymns, like what we just sang, and puts newer tunes to them. And, and this is one of his. And our, our closing hymn, Jesus Sinners Does Receive, is another one of Matt's arrangements. And so uh, we're thankful to the Lord for the ministry our brother has in serving the churches by giving us uh, these wonderful, wonderful hymns uh, that, uh, that we may sing together. Well, let me ask you to turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 8. Uh, just by way of remembrance, we, last week we were in chapter 7, which uh, coming to the end of chapter 6 with the final judgment, we come to chapter 7 and there's an interlude between the 6th and the 7th seals. And that interlude is a glorious picture of the saints uh, sealed and protected while on earth, and then the last half of the chapter uh, in heaven is the church triumphant, people from every nation and tribe, and people, and language around the throne and before the Lamb, singing, salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. And as we stand on that day before the throne of our God and before the Lamb, it will be beyond our wildest imagination. We will be so overwhelmed with the mercy and the grace and the glory of God. I can just imagine being there and looking around, and, 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 and there are people that we prayed for, and they're here. There are tribes that we prayed for, for our missionaries to reach with the gospel, and they're here. And I'm here in the presence of God. What a wonder that will be. Now, as we transition from that, we come to this seventh seal, which really introduces us to the seven trumpets in Revelation chapter 8. Now, there's a principle, and I'm going to talk about it again later, we call it progressive parallelism. That is uh, kind of an interpretive principle for interpreting the book of Revelation. In other words, the events described in Revelation, the visions are not sequential, but rather they're parallel. The same events are being described uh, from different perspectives over and over with increasing intensity. So it's not like the seven seals happen, and when they're done, the seven bowls happen, or trumpets happen, and when they're done, the seven trumpets happen. No, the sixth seal is the final judgment. But then we go back and we look at the trumpets and then the bowls. If you remember those first four seals, the tribulation that is poured out on the earth throughout the church age. And in that fourth seal, death and Hades are given authority to kill one-fourth of the earth. Lock that in your mind for a moment. Death and Hades given authority to kill a quarter of the people on the earth. The fifth seal, the martyrs are crying out to the Lord, how long, O Lord, until you judge those who oppressed us? And the sixth seal is that outpouring of God's judgment, His wrath in the final judgment. And we come to chapter 8 this morning, the seventh seal, and silence falls over all of heaven for about half an hour. And the following verses introduce us then to the trumpets 
which really go back to the first four seals, the temporal judgments described, but again with greater intensity. Not a new series of judgments, but a, a fuller explanation, a more intense unfolding, as it were, of God's providence on the earth. The the calamities of God's judgment are described here in greater detail. If you remember, that fourth seal, a quarter of the earth was killed. Here, the trumpets tell us a third of the earth is destroyed. See, it's a greater proportion. It's becoming more intense in its consequences. One of the commentators, Vern Poitras, observes this. He said, the seven seals began with the announcement of riders riders commissioned to bring calamities. And the seven trumpets, by contrast, contained vivid descriptions of those calamities themselves. So that's what we'll be looking at this morning, the first four of the trumpets. But going forward, we'll see also the seven bowls of the wrath of God, which all seven really are the final outpouring of the judgment of God on the wicked. It's a further unfolding of that sixth seal, which is a final uh, judgment. So this morning, we're in chapter 8, where we see the seventh seal, which leads us or introduces us to the seven trumpets. And this chapter, these, these trumpets are a warning to those who are outside of Jesus Christ, those who, are, those who dwell upon the earth, we read in this chapter. And it's interesting, these seven trumpets are really reminiscent of the seven trumpets that Israel, the seven priests of Israel, blew around the city of Jericho before the walls collapsed and Jericho was utterly destroyed. That prefigures the judgment of God, which is described here and further in the book of Revelation. But before before we look at these trumpets and this judgment, There's a betrayal here of of a glorious spiritual reality. So let's look, first of all, at the preparation for the trumpets. Verse 1, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. I can't be silent for half a minute before everybody gets really squirmy and uncomfortable, right? There's something about silence. Verse 2 says, then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. Now, up to this point, the depiction of the throne room of heaven was a very active and, 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 and even a noisy place. Thousands of, upon thousands of angels, saints, elders, living creatures, all bowing down and praising God with loud voices, singing his praise, declaring his glory. And over again, we see they did so with loud voices. And then we come to verse 1 in chapter 8 where the seventh seal is open and it's like suddenly silence falls over the hosts of heaven. This incredible awe and silence envelops the entire population of heaven. I don't know if you've ever been to the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier in Washington, D.C., but you have this crowd of people watching these soldiers march back and forth. It's, it's one at a time until they, you know, hand over the, you know, pass the, 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 the shift to the next guy. But the crowd stands in utter silence. But it's silence in respect for the dead. Here the silence is in awe of the living God. 
And you could hear a pin drop if such were to happen. Why the silence? Well, there's a lot of theories. Some say it's they're contemplating the judgments. And it just grips the heart of every being in heaven with wonder and awe. Certainly the glory of God. But there's an amazement. There's a hushed wonder in the presence of God for about a half hour, which I find to be very curious. Uh, Again, we don't believe that Revelation is presenting us a sequential chronology. So to say, well, when does that half hour take place? Well, it's hard to say because it also says they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. So there was a point, you see, if we take it all literally and try to create a a chronological sequence, we, we, we will run into trouble. But there's an awe and a wonder and these, these vivid descriptions are intended to spark our imagination. So, so think about John standing in this, viewing this vision of this great multitude that no one could count around the throne, the four living beasts, the 24 elders, tens of thousands of angels. They've been singing and declaring the praises of God with loud voices and suddenly, as if in an instant, absolute silence falls over the entire heavenly host. And the glory of God radiates around the throne. And every single being is awestruck and silent. It reminds me of Habakkuk 2, verse 20. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. And in that silence, the seven angels are handed these seven trumpets. A very solemn ceremony, as it were. And that silence is not broken until verse 5 where it says, Peals of thunder and rumblings and flashes of lightning and an earthquake were hurled down upon the earth. And we'll see in a moment these seven trumpets proclaiming the judgment upon the wicked. But before the seven angels blow those seven trumpets, something very important happens. Another angel comes forward with a golden censer. That's a metal bowl. This golden censer, which is used for burning incense to the Lord. And that picture we have here is a picture of the the prayers of the saints ascending up to the throne of God. Look at verses 3 and following. Another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. Now, (coughs) from Romans chapter 8, what do we know about what happens to our prayers? Does anybody feel like my prayers are all powerful? My prayers are just... Just, man, when I pray, I know heaven and earth has moved. None of us feels that, right? We all feel grossly inadequate when we pray. In Romans 8, 26, it says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we don't know what to pray for. We don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Sometimes those groanings are because our sorrow and our grief or our our, our affliction is so heavy we can barely speak. 
But in any case, we never really, really know exactly how to pray. And we sort of stumble and fumble before the throne of grace, but the Spirit helps our weakness and makes our prayers effectual. But later in the chapter, Romans 8, 34, uh, the apostles asking, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Jesus is also praying for us. The Spirit is helping us, and Jesus is praying for us so that our prayers, however feeble they might be, become effectual. The Lord Jesus interceding. And if you're a Christian, that's a glorious truth. This, this heavenly vision illustrates for us that reality as the angel comes with a censer of, of incense that is burning up uh, to the Lord combined with the prayers of all the saints. It rises to the Lord and he receives it. He blesses his people through these prayers, through this intercession. Now, the Westminster Confession, or Catechism, rather, asks this question, what is prayer? I love this answer. Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will, in the name of Christ, with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement for his mercies. Confession of sin, thankful acknowledgement of his mercies, lifting up our desires for those things agreeable to his will, all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, sometimes we don't know what's agreeable to his will. That's why we need the Spirit to help us, who takes our feeble efforts and turns them into effectual prayers. And verse 5 indicates that God uses even our prayers to carry out his purposes on earth. Look again at verse 5. The angel took the censer and filled it with fire. The censer that was the combination of prayers and incense going up to the Lord. And he fills it with fire from the altar. And he threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Not only does God use our prayers to advance his kingdom when we say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God uses our prayers even to judge the wicked. Remember the, the, the fifth seal. Where the saints are crying out, how long, O Lord, before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. This intercession, and combined with our prayers and the incense all together, accomplish the purposes of God, even those purposes of judging his enemies. And these peals of thunder and this rumbling is earthquake is a foreshadowing of what's further unpacked in the first four trumpets. And we might, what we might call natural disasters begin to rain down upon the earth. So <clears throat> let's look at the first four trumpets that are described here in the rest of chapter 8. Now, verse 2 tells us there are seven trumpets, right? The first four are described here, and they focus on God's destruction of the earth, the environment, as it were. The last three focus on God's destruction poured out upon the wicked. And again, it's not a new stage in the unfolding of God's purpose. It's that progressive parallelism that we talked about a moment ago, a more intense recounting of that judgment that has already been referred to. 
And there seems to be certainly an intensification of these calamities as we get nearer and nearer to the return of the Lord Jesus. But we don't know when that's going to be. But we're not talking about a distinct period. Those who are of a dispensationalist interpretation would say there's this seven-year tribulation, and this is pointing to that that seven-year period of intense uh, uh, persecution or, 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 or wrath being poured out on the earth in a temporal manner. I don't believe that's what this, this is teaching at all. I believe this is teaching this is the continual and increasingly intense activity through all of the age since the Lord Jesus went to heaven until he comes back once again. And as his return gets closer and closer, the intensity and the severity of the judgments continues to increase. So as we read these trumpet judgments, they appear to us as warnings to those who are of the earth, those who are not repenting, those who are not trusting in the Lord Jesus. God is giving them time to repent if they will only do so. But the stubborn hard-heartedness of man is revealed even as they continue to harden their hearts in these calamities that are truly overwhelming. One of the things I want you to see is is we'll see the the ten plagues reflected in some of these judgments. We'll see some of the the very same type of events that were poured out upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt and Exodus repeated with greater, greater scope and ferocity here in these trumpet judgments. Again, it's symbolic language. Don't get bogged down trying to identify events or details. But just recognize that this is serving as a warning on those who are outside of Christ. You must repent. You must turn to the Lord Jesus. So let's look at the first trumpet in verse 7. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown down upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. Fire. And hail mixed with blood. That's a terrifying visual image. I was caught in a hailstorm a few years ago driving by here, and it was quite frightening. But there was no fire in that hail, and there's certainly no blood. It did a lot of damage here at the church. It did damage to my vehicle. It did damage in my house. But it was not what's described here, fire and blood. It's very much like the seventh plague that fell on Pharaoh in Egypt. And and Pharaoh cried out and said, enough, enough. He cried, uncle. But when the trial subsided, the plague ended, he continued to harden his heart and refused to repent. But this fire, fiery hail is not limited to one place in the earth. It's a third of the entire earth, burns up a third of the trees, a third of the vegetation, all the green grass, and men still refuse to repent. If you watch the news, you remember this is about the time, and sure enough, it's happening again. But every summer, we see these wildfires out west. I was in Sacramento, California last year when there were two wildfires not far from Sacramento, and you could see uh, a couple of the days, it, it was just totally uh, 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 overcast. It was totally that you couldn't see the sun at all because there was so much smoke in the air. And it's amazing to me 
that the, the, the efforts that men go to to fight these wildfires. And then I read these words and I realize there's no effort whatsoever put into repenting of sin. That this judgment, this, this, this hail, fiery hail raining down, whatever that might be, calls for. They'll fight the, the, the consequences of their sin, but they will not repent of their sin. So this first trumpet represents natural disasters of all manner that, that, that rain down upon this physical world, this environment in which we live. The second trumpet in verse 9 The calamity focuses on the sea. Verse 8, the second angel blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. The oceans become the scene of this calamity. It, (coughs) It seems to describe an enormous volcano, doesn't it? A mountain melts into the sea. Uh, And in fact, there were two great volcanoes that took place in the first century, Mount Vesuvius and Pompeii, that were fresh in the minds of those who read this letter in the very first generation. And so that would have resonated in their minds. It was a vivid word picture of what was to come, and yet it was much greater, more more terrible than any single volcano. A third of the ocean turns to blood. Again, that's reminiscent of the Nile River turning to blood, the very first plague, if you recall that. A third of all sea creatures died. A third of all the ships in the sea were destroyed along with the inhabitants, the passengers on those ships. Again, we're not talking about a single event. We're talking about the events with increasing intensity, the natural disasters, the calamities and the human suffering that will take place because God's temporal judgment is being poured out upon this earth, calling on men to repent while they still have time. I've heard it said there are no terrors like terrors on the sea because there's nowhere to go. There's nowhere to hide. You are in the ocean. And it would be terrifying, truly, and yet men still will not repent. Verse 10, we look at the third trumpet. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on the earth. Or, excuse me, fell on a third of the rivers. And on the springs of water, the name of the star was Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. So here we have not only the salt water, the seas, but now the fresh water, the rivers and the, and the lakes are soured. By this great star falling from heaven, a, a third of all fresh water supplies are, foiled, are spoiled. They're fouled and poisoned, and many, many people die of this catastrophe. Interesting to me how much effort goes into clean water bills, clean water legislation, clean water uh, uh, efforts to, to clean up our environment with no understanding whatsoever that God is going to destroy our fresh water supply because of the sin of man and no recognition whatsoever of the need to repent of that sin while there is yet time. There's some who read this and they say, well, this is talking about acid rain. Look what acid rain does to the, to the, to the water supply. And the acid rain certainly does. You know, uh, when it's bad, it does affect our water supply in troubling ways. 
But those are man-made things, disasters. This seems to indicate that God is the one raining down this fire upon the earth. God is the one who is bringing judgment upon the earth, spoiling the earth, as it were, of its ability to sustain human life. And then we come to the fourth judgment or fourth trumpet in verse 12. The fourth angel blew his trumpet. And a third of the sun was struck and a third of the moon and a third of the stars so that a third of their light might be darkened and a third of the day might be kept from shining and likewise a third of the night. The lights in the heavens are struck. The sun, the moon, the the, the day and the night are dimmed by one third. Reminds us of that ninth plague where darkness fell over Egypt for three days. And again, however this unfolds and whatever it looks like, it's very, very troubling. It could indicate darkness pervading the world. It could be a massive blackout for all we know. There may be a time, it may point to a time when there will actually be an interruption of heavenly lights. That's not the... the, 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 the point is here is not trying to figure out when will this happen and what will it look like, but rather to recognize the terror when the judgment of God falls, but realize it's a temporal judgment for this time being, and there is yet time. Dennis Johnson in his commentary says this, the purpose of portraying these judgments as the descent of burning objects from the sky is not to equate them with missiles or meteors or atomic fallout or acid rain or volcanic ash. Rather... It is to stress that the destruction that decimates the physical world through warfare, other human evils, or natural disasters, which we might call, if you're an insurance agent, acts of God, is ultimately the outworking of God's sovereign purpose, defending his people and warning his enemies. And these four trumpets point to the complete disruption of life on this earth. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. I'm going to start reading in verse 19. Paul is telling us what the curse has done to this world that we live in and really is being unfolded more distinctly and more disturbingly in Revelation 8. But in Romans 8, verse 18, or 19 rather, the creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know the whole creation has been groaning together in the chains of child, in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. The creation is groaning under the weight of the curse. It was subjected to futility, to the bondage, to corruption. If you're a scientist, you might say, oh, that explains the law of entropy. Bondage to corruption and decay. But this corruption will be increasingly destructive up until the final judgment of the Lord. It's interesting, we hear in our day all around us these dire warnings about climate change. The clock is ticking and we are going to reach the point of no return if we don't take drastic action to reduce our pollution. 
we must fill in the blank. Now, I believe it's foolish, I believe it's wrong for us to trash the planet as if we were not called to be good stewards of it. I believe responsible stewardship of this world is important. But the reality is the climate is changing from anything we could see, but it's always been changing, going to ice ages and heating times and back and forth, and it's always in flux. But the greater issue is not whether the cause of the climate changing is man-made pollution or not. That's not really the issue. If, you, if we eliminated all the carbon emissions from the entire earth and we stewarded the planet with perfect responsibility, guess what? It would do absolutely nothing to withhold the trumpet judgments being described in Revelation chapter 8. They are coming, and there's nothing we can do to stop it. All we can do is repent of our sins that we not be destroyed by it. And we have men in this world who, who fervently and feverishly deny the Creator who made them. And they're eagerly trying to preserve this present world with no concept, no idea that the very creator who made this world and made them is the one raining down destruction upon this present world, even as we speak. And there's no concept that one day this world is going to be done away with. The the old earth, the present earth will be destroyed and give way to a new heavens and a new earth. So the question of the hour is not how do we save the planet? You can't. Now, we should be responsible, obviously, good stewards of this world in which God has called us to live. But we can't ultimately save the planet from the judgment of God. We can't do it. It's foolish to try in that sense. The the question of the hour is, when will the wicked forsake his ways? When will the kings of this earth kiss the sun, lest he be angry? With them? When will the unrighteous give up their foolish fantasies and their hollow pleasures? God sends warning after warning and opportunity after opportunity, and those who are the dwellers of the earth continue to harden their hearts in their unbelief. And then we find in verse 13 this eagle who flies overhead. Verse 13, I looked and I, I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. That's unbelievers, those outside of Christ. At the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. Woe, woe, woe. Three trumpets that are about to come. Two of them will be in chapter 9. The third will be in chapter 11. And those three trumpets focus more directly on the human toll of the temporal judgment, even as God continues to call on men to repent. And we read in chapter 9, verse 20 and 21, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, so many are, many are killed, but the rest of mankind did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. I read in Habakkuk 2 earlier, the Lord is in his holy temple, let all the earth keep silence before him. The context of that passage is that the men of the earth are bowing down to all these idols And those idols are utterly silent. They're dead. They're lifeless. And we in 
response should come before the Lord who is living, and we should be silent in his presence. This week, as I was meditating on this passage and trying to think, how do I wrap my hands around preaching about the judgment of the Lord on this world? I'm a lover of classical music, choral music particularly. When I was in college, we sang through a a piece called the Requiem by Giuseppe Verdi. I don't know if you've ever heard of Verdi's Requiem or not, but basically all of these Requiems, they're, they're, they're Catholic prayers for the dead, and they all use the same Latin Latin uh, uh, prayers, some of them include the final movement that Verity includes, some don't. But I was haunted as I thought through this, and I, I listened to it several times. Of course, you have to read the words in English to know exactly what they're saying, but there's this, 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 this desperate cry. And it's just this pleading cry. And when you find out, what are they actually saying? They're saying, deliver me, O Lord, from eternal death on that awful day when the heavens and the earth shall be moved, when you will come to judge the world by fire. I tremble and I fear the judgment and the wrath to come. When the heavens and the earth shall be moved, the day of wrath, that day of calamity and misery, a great and bitter day indeed. Deliver me, O Lord, from eternal death on that awful day. Deliver me. I sat at my desk listening to this and just wept because there are people singing these words all over the world and they're doing all they can to save the planet (laughs) and they won't turn to the one refuge who can save them from the wrath of God to come. And so I just want to say to you, are you in Christ? Do you know Jesus is my Lord, my Savior? My citizenship is in heaven with him. And while calamity will fall on the righteous and the unrighteous alike in a temporal way, and some will be killed like the martyrs described in that fourth or fifth seal, our souls are eternally safe. We need not fear those who can destroy the body but cannot touch the soul because God alone can destroy both body and soul in hell. And if you're in Christ, that will not happen. And we can live with confidence. We can live with peace. We can live with joy. But the invitation is now. Because on that great and terrible day, and we don't know when it will be, it will be too late. And those who have have refused opportunity after opportunity will cry out, as we read earlier in in chapter 6, for the mountains and the rocks to fall on them and protect them from the wrath of the Lamb. There will be no refuge on that day. And so I I urge you, even now, if you are not a Christian, Jesus says, come. He says, come. Don't delay. Don't wait. Don't put it off. Now, you may have noticed also in our, our, our bulletin, our order of worship this morning, that our service ends with communion. And I was wondering, how am I going to transition from a sermon about the terrors of God's wrath to the sweetness of the Lord's table, right? Well, here it is. Go back to Romans 8 once again. Romans 8 once again. I'm going to start reading in verse 18 this time and go just a bit further. Romans 8 verse 18, I consider the sufferings of this present time and those sufferings, some cases caused by the very calamities we've just read about. Those sufferings 
are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God, not just terror upon the dwellers of the earth, but eagerness for what is in store for the children of God. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from the bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That's what Jesus purchased for us on the cross. For we know the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. No hope that's seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for it, what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Dear friends, one of the things that Paul tells us when we come to the table and we share the, the bread and we share the cup together, we proclaim the death of our Lord Jesus until he comes. We anticipate the glorious deliverance that will be ours when the new heaven and the new earth are created, when Jesus makes all things new, when he wipes every tear from our eyes, and when he serves us at a heavenly banquet that surpasses anything we could ever imagine. So we look forward to the return of our Savior, not, not with fear, not with trembling, not with terror, as those who are dwellers of the earth, but rather with the hope of glory as the sons of the living God redeemed by the blood of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In a moment, I'm going to ask the men who are going to serve to come forward, but I simply want to say this to you. If you're really a Christian, if you are trusting in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and if you are seeking to walk before Him in obedience, and part of that obedience is faithful church membership, faithfully seeking to uh, serve the Lord within the context of His church, having been baptized to profess your faith in Christ. Now, I realize if uh, there are some who are uh, uh, pedo-baptists who believe that, that, that their baptism is biblical, and I'm not going to quibble about that. A pedo-baptist is certainly welcome to take communion with us. But seeking to be faithful to what the Lord teaches and walk in obedience. The, the, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11, if you're not dealing with your sin, if you cannot take the Lord's table in a worthy manner, you'd do better not to. Now, the reality is every one of us has sins that we wrestle with, and every one of us comes to the table many times feeling defeated and discouraged and somewhat hopeless. And the purpose of the table is not stay away if you're weak, because every one of us is. The purpose of the table is here is a means of grace to remind those who are seeking to bask in God's grace, a reminder that grace is for you, a reminder that all who will may come, and that open invitation to the child of God to dine with Jesus and in this day with his people. So I would ask the men who are going to serve to please come forward.